I'm Lisa Stonehouse, and I am the Director of Discipleship and Care here at Harbor Life. And having that as my job is such a gift and such a blessing to be able to journey through life with all of you. Um, before I get started, I just want to quickly honor my grandpa. He is here today. It is his 88th birthday, and I thought it was so special. Yes. He is one of my favorite people in the world. We have coffee at my island a lot, and he mows my lawn. So very faithfully, loads up a big old mower, and he mows my lawn for me. So he is a gift to my heart and to my life. So, and we figured it out. He was my age when I was born. I just turned 44, and he's 88, so it's kind of crazy. Um, will you guys pray with me? Father, thank you that we can gather together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son to us. Thank you for being with us. Lord, I pray for this message this morning. Lord, that um, the words are from you, that your Holy Spirit is welcome and alive in this place. In your precious name, amen. I don't know where to, this is just, I don't know where to go. It's so bright. We haven't had sun in forever. <laughs> um, so last week, Brent shared that we are starting a whole year in the Gospel of Matthew. We're reading it, we're working through it, and we're learning to walk it out in our lives. And I could not be more excited to spend a year in that book. A year to live and learn from the dearest and truest and most faithful of people, Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. I am all in and so excited for this. I have some ideas on how to, um, this is a little side note, but how to do Matthew in our life. For, if we're going to be in this book for a year, let's figure out how to really live it out. So if anybody has ideas on how to do that or things that we could do, come talk to me because I want to really, really um, make use of this time. And if we're going to be a year in a book, let's, let's do it really well. Brent also introduced the genealogy of Jesus that the book of Matthew starts out with. How important it was for us to spend time reading those long, unpronounceable names. He showed us how Matthew highlighted those that the rest of the world would have passed over. Unlikely people with colorful pasts. How God used them and wove their stories into the tapestry that makes up the lineage of Jesus. Matthew takes story after story of Jesus, loving and serving and feeding and healing the most unlikely of people. With the help of more unlikely people, his 12 disciples. And then Matthew tells the story of Jesus giving his life for us through his death. Even more unlikely people. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to read this morning from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Mary and Joseph. I have never in my life said Joseph and Mary. All the children's stories call them Mary and Joseph. One of my favorite verses is, but Mary treasured and pondered all these things in her heart. There's that older song, Mary, Did You Know, where they ask all those beautiful questions about her heart. You throw up a Hail Mary. One of my most embarrassing moments was in Hobby Lobby a few summers ago. It was a complete downpour, and I was wearing my two-for-five Old Navy flip-flops that I wear all summer long. There is no traction or grip on those buggers. I walked in the store, the entrance was wet, and I went down hard, all the way, totally slipped. A lady who was working there yelled, sweet mother of Mary, and came running over to me. Are you okay? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine, you know, like I, I planned on doing this or I do this all the time. Meanwhile, dying a thousand deaths and my pride and my body was hurting. Mary was faithful and obedient and precious and tender and fierce. And I'm holding dear her role in the Christmas story of the really, really hard things that she had to walk through. We're going to talk about her this morning, but we're going to talk more about Joseph. I do most of my processing in my head, and I've thought a lot about Joseph this week. So much in fact, I almost painted my dining room because that's where I do my best thinking, but I thought I'd better write this instead of paint that while I think. But as I was thinking about him, I thought I really haven't thought about Joseph very much in my life. But the more I thought about him, felt myself in his shoes, asked questions, and studied, I'm in awe of him and his character an unlikely soul used in a remarkable story. In Luke we read, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. We learn that Joseph's father was named Jacob, according to Matthew 1.16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So Joseph's father, Jacob, was a descendant of King David, probably the greatest king of Israel. 
Almost a thousand years had passed since King David had died when Joseph was born. Matthew tells us that Joseph was born into the royal line of David since Jacob was his father. The the scriptures had prophesied that the Messiah would be born out of the royal line of David. We learn later in Matthew that Joseph was not a professional man, but a carpenter or a laborer. Since some people made the following comment, is this not the carpenter's son? They were talking about Jesus. Is not his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? The Greek word that is translated as carpenter is tecton. That word can refer to a craftsman who used wood, metal, or stone. But carpenter was more common. Joseph was a hard-working laborer. Upon further study, we learn that Joseph was poor at the time that Jesus was born. There is this fascinating detail that comes up in Luke's account just a few days after Jesus was born. In Luke 2.22, we read, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So, eight days after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Because as Luke tells us, that is what the law required. And what law is Luke referencing? Luke is quoting another passage from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus. And we'll notice what Luke is talking about. In Leviticus 12, it says, When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of the meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So all parents were required by Jewish law to offer a sacrifice. If you could afford it, you offered a lamb. But Joseph and Mary, as we're told, did not sacrifice a lamb. They sacrificed some birds, which means that they couldn't afford a lamb because Joseph and Mary were too poor. There's also a bunch of really cool historical reasoning as to why Joseph wasn't in Bethlehem, which was the town of his ancestors, at the time that they found out Mary was pregnant. To quickly sum it up, there probably wasn't work in Bethlehem for Joseph to support Mary. If you're poor, you go where there's work. In Nazareth, there was work, but the work was not pleasant. During that time, they were building up the Roman Empire for King Herod, who was a horrific man. Herod was truly an enemy to the Jews. So Joseph was living in Nazareth when the decree came out for the census, probably most likely employed by the Roman Empire. Um, Bethlehem was about 100 miles from Nazareth. Matthew 1.18 
This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So if you think of all those things that made up Joseph for who he was, he's pledged to be married to Mary. Which is much more than just an engagement. In those days, two families would agree to a marriage between their son and their daughter, as well as the cost of the bride to be paid by the groom's parents to the bride's father. In that particular culture, most marriages were arranged by the families back when they were just children. The philosophy was that marriage was far too serious an endeavor to be left to the heart. Lineages were at stake. Family property was at stake. This was as much a business arrangement on which the fabric of the community relied. In a public announcement, the two families would announce their engagement. Does anybody remember the Grand Rapids Press announcements? I think it was Saturday morning. That was always so fun to see. So Mary and Joseph announced their engagement. And they entered in what was called the betrothal period of their relationship. And it lasted for one year leading up to the wedding day. The betrothal marked the beginning of the legally binding relationship, the covenant. The bride and the groom were considered husband and wife in all matters, except they didn't live together and the marriage hadn't been consummated. During this period of time, the husband would spend that time preparing a place for his bride in their family home often extending on to the existing home with a room or rooms for this new branch of the family tree. Once the construction was complete, the wedding could take place. Because this contract or covenant was legally binding, the betrothal could only be broken through formal proceedings of divorce, and then only if one of the parties had been unfaithful. So with all of this in mind, picture Joseph working in his shop, crafting a chair or a table, maybe even for the home he and Mary were going to share. The door slowly opens, and sweet Mary stands in the doorway, the glow of the sun lighting up her timid face. Mary knew that what she was about to tell Joseph was going to change their lives forever. If Joseph didn't believe her, what she was about to tell him could have brought her death. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, I'm pregnant from the Holy Spirit. I know it's so hard to understand, but but let me tell you. I wonder if one look at Joseph's grief-filled face stopped her from saying more. How could that even be possible? Humanly thinking, it couldn't be. Impossible. Completely impossible. I think of Joseph in that devastation. 
hearing that his beloved Mary was pregnant. That deep sense of betrayal he must have felt. I'll bet the rest of his life he remembered every detail of that moment. I remember the exact spot in my dining room where I was standing when I learned of the deepest of betrayals. That one foot by one foot space on our dining room rug when the voice on the other end of the line broke my heart. Shock, betrayal, devastation. How could the one I love and adored have betrayed me and our covenant and gotten pregnant? I wonder if Joseph had tears falling into his beard that mixed with the sawdust. I wonder if Mary's shoulders were shaking with sobs as she walked out of that little shop her heart broken, that the man she loved did not believe her and the news that she shared that she could hardly believe. Between the absolute heartbreaking betrayal of Joseph, thinking his covenant was Mary, with Mary was broken, and the deep pain of Mary being accused of something so terrible that she didn't do, I couldn't stop thinking about them and their families of the shame, of the feelings of betrayal, the emptiness, the despair, facing questions and heartbreaking decisions, wrestling with what to do, and then having to surrender and trust and obey, even when humanly possible, you couldn't explain why. Different circumstances but so many parts of those wild emotions bring up two of the most heart-wrenching seasons of my life. I can feel the agony of Joseph, his heart shattered by the one he trusted, reeling from the devastation. I can feel the feeling of Mary, of the abandonment that she had to have felt that Joseph didn't believe her, panic creeping in. What was she going to do? I wonder if you too can feel that agony of Joseph and his feelings of betrayal or Mary's feelings of being abandoned and accused of something that she didn't do. Can you feel pain in the pain-filled parts of your story in this one? I think, though, that there is such a profound and beautiful thought to this that in this pain and in this brokenness, Jesus entered the world. His witness changes everything. He enters our pain and our brokenness. And when we surrender and trust and obey, we are transformed. So to find out that your betrothed, your legal wife, was pregnant by someone other than yourself, who you thought was unfaithful to you, had to have been a gut punch and taken Joseph's breath away. In 19, we read, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, which basically means that he was a man who observed Jewish law faithfully. Well, he had two options. One, the husband could publicly divorce her, leaving her with no legal standing, no support, no place to live. Or the unfaithful wife could be stoned to death. 
Joseph not only had the right to divorce Mary, under Jewish law, she could be put to death by stoning. Even though Joseph didn't understand it yet, God had chosen him, a humble carpenter, poor, an unlikely person to be the earthly father of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Joseph was faithful to the law, or another version says, Joseph being a righteous man. Those things shine light onto his character, who he was, faithful and righteous. I imagine Joseph laying in his bed that night, tossing, turning, sick to his stomach, wrestling with what to do. Feelings of anger and betrayal, thinking maybe she just deserved that stoning. I've been there, wanting the person who hurt me to, to suffer. Then tenderness for the one he still loved crept in. A softness for the young woman who he thought he would spend the rest of his life with. We read, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. His actions toward Mary revealed that he was kind and he was sensitive, that it, his heart was for Mary. It shows a deep love. When Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant, he had every right to feel disgraced and embarrassed and outraged. He knew the child was not his own. And Mary's apparent unfaithfulness carried a grave social stigma that he would carry for the rest of his life. Although Joseph's initial reaction was to break off their engagement, which was the appropriate thing for a righteous man to do, he was planning to treat Mary with extreme gentleness and kindness. He didn't want to cause her further shame, so he decided to do this quietly. And in verse 20, we read, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In the darkness of the turmoil of that night, God sent an angel to Joseph through a dream to say to him, Mary is faithful. She's telling you the truth. Her story is true. Your marriage to her will be a gift, and this baby will be a gift that will save the world. It's God's son. From that encounter with the angel, Joseph willingly obeyed God in spite of the public humiliation he would face. Perhaps this noble quality was one of the reasons that God chose him to be the Messiah's earthly father. While the Bible doesn't talk about Mary that night, I can imagine her sobbing in her pillow, crying out, God, you said these things to me. You said nothing is impossible with you. Yet Joseph doesn't believe me and he thinks terrible things about me. Overcome with fear, her life wasn't turning out as she dreamed. 
laying there in the dark, her face wet with tears, thinking over the angel's visit to her a few months before. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel told her that she was pregnant. And in that conversation that she had with the angel, Mary's tender heart had believed and surrendered. And now this? Joseph didn't believe her. Why, God? Joseph's pain and wrestle. Mary's pain and wrestle on that dark night in Nazareth. Joseph had seen an angel in a dream that night, and what the angel would say to him would change his life forever. Mary had seen an angel in real life a couple of months before, and what that angel said to her would change her life forever. The message to Joseph was that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he would save his people from their sins. The message to Mary was that she had found favor to God, that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that her son would be the son of God, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom would have no end. They both heard that his name was to be Jesus. Jesus. Joseph believed God and responded to him by trusting, surrendering, and obeying that reveals Joseph's heart towards God. To put aside the practical, the what makes sense, what is right, Joseph was compassionate and full of trust. He was obedient to God. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. I wonder how Joseph told her. Did he run through the darkness of the night, excited to wrap her in his arms and to tell her that he was so sorry, that he adored her and that everything was going to be okay? Or did maybe that dream come later and he ran over when the first glimmer of sun peeked over the horizon? The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's kind of fun to wonder. Just to imagine their joy and their relief and their tender whispers of hope. 
All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you see what God said to Joseph through the angel? Emmanuel, God with us. And did you see what God said to Mary through the angel? The Lord is with you. Shortly after all of this, Jesus entered their lives, entered our world. His withness changes everything. He enters the pain and the brokenness of our lives and of this world. In the heart of life, in the confusion, the feelings of anger, feelings of abandonment and betrayal, financial hardships, hard things with our kids, broken relationships, anxiety, depression, in the pain and in the wrestling, God is with us. His withness surrounds us. You know I love words. So I thought I would look up the word with in Greek. It's meta, which means among, after, in company with. With is a proposition implying change afterward. What results after the activity. So the activity is with. Meta looks toward the change, which is the result that happens after being with. If you think of metamorphosis, it's a caterpillar changing into a butterfly, butterfly changed after being with the cocoon. Metanoia is a beautiful, tender, biblical repentance, which means changed after being with. He loves us so much that he longs to be with us. When we are with him, we can't help but be changed, be transformed, become healed and whole. I wonder what happens when we, other very unlikely people, allow the withness of Emmanuel to form and shape our hearts, how we think and feel and love and live with others. How in spite of the hardness of life, God's withness enters in, it surrounds us and holds us, and if we allow it to, changes us after being with him. I was in Michael's this week. Pine-scented candles were on sale, four for ten. There was a man ahead of me in line. I'd say he was around 75. He was holding a frame. He walked up to the cashier and he proudly put it on the counter. She greeted him and he smiled back. He excitedly told her, This frame is for my son. I was cleaning out my office this week and I found his diploma. And I thought to myself, I need to frame this for him. I'm so glad I found it. My eyes filled up with tears listening to him and his thoughtfulness and his heart for his son and the beauty that this gift held. I thought of his son, wishing he could see his dad's excitement in that moment. And then I wondered what his reaction to the gift would be because I thought of receiving my high school diploma framed by my dad and as much as I love him, it probably wouldn't make me excited. <laughs> but I felt protective of that older man in that moment. 
I wished his son could see that, his thoughtfulness, his joy, his excitement and pride, hoping so much that his son would love his gift. Then the dad said, I can't wait for Christmas to be with him, to give him this. And I just, I mean, I'm holding my candles and feeling all moved over this moment, but then I felt the Lord say to me, that's how I feel about you, my girl. Do you treasure the gifts that I have for you? Are they meaningful to you? Do you see their value? I want to be with you. You see, that father's joy, I have even more fullness of joy for you. Come to me. Take the gifts of rest, of joy, of peace that you get when you're with me. I could barely hold back my tears as I checked out with my candles. I want to hold on to that moment to remember the gifts that God has for us, that being with him in his witness, we are changed, and that is such a gift. The witness of Jesus is a tender gift to change us more and more into his likeness. To have his heart and his eyes for ourself and for people of this world. Another gift that Jesus has for us is communion, which is a way for us to purposefully remember Jesus and his preciousness of what his witness means. When we take the Lord's Supper, we recognize both the promise of a new life at the end of our story, but also a renewal that is taking place here within us now. We are invited to come and gather around this table because we are all a part of the same family. We offer him our brokenness today, both as individuals but as a community, knowing that healing is possible through the sacrifice of Jesus, Emmanuel on the cross, through his resurrection. We're going to do it a little bit different this morning. Um, the band will come up and play, and then we'll come up. George and Mary will give, um, give us our elements, and then we're going to go back in our seat and hold your element and then once everyone has been served, I will come up and pray, and we will take communion all together. One of my favorite verses is in Luke 22, where Jesus gathered with his very best friends. And he said to them, I have been so eager to eat this meal with you. Jesus loved them so much. He knew what was about to happen. And yet he said he was eager to have that meal with them because he knew that his disciples being with him would change them. It would change us. Jesus knows every part of who we are. He's excited to invite us to the same table. Jesus stopped at nothing. He gave his life for us. We come to this table 
to remember him. Jesus stopped at nothing. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, of who we are and who we are not, he loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. There is nothing we can do to make Jesus love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make Jesus love us less. He is with us.